0: Last week at the beginning of Revelation chapter 21, John saw the bride, the holy city, descending from God. She, the bride, is the centerpiece of the new heavens and the new earth. One can even make a, an argument that the bride is almost identical, almost coterminous, if you will as the new heavens and the new earth in John's vision. He mentions the new heavens and new earth one time, at the beginning of chapter 21. Then he spends basically two chapters describing the bride herself. So the bride and her communion with God and glory is the focus, or the center, of the new creation. Her destiny is to be the place of full and uninhibited communion with God in glory. You are God's dwelling place. The location where God desires to dwell and manifest his glory. And that is seen in a consummate way in this vision. But last week's text was just a mere preview. John goes on here in Revelation 21, describing, and it's clear he's describing in ways that exceed the capacity of human language. He's trying to to get us to see the beauty and the radiance, the splendor of the bride. And so we'll look at this text under the three headings that are there in the back of your bulletin. They're on the back inside cover. The bride, uh, the city itself, the measurements and the material. The city, the measurements and the material. So first then the city... So Revelation 21, beginning at verse 9, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls of the seven last plagues comes to John, again linking the judgment scenes with the coming new heavens and new earth. You get this same angelic description with these same seven bowls at the beginning of the vision of the judgment of Babylon in Revelation 17. And so, the point is, the point that the Spirit is saying is that Babylon, the false bride, must be judged before the holy bride of Christ can be revealed in all of her splendor. Now, if you go back to chapter 17, this same angel tells John, come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute, which is seated on many waters. Here that same angel, in almost identical language, says to John, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And then John is carried away in the text here, the next verse, verse 10. Carried away or lifted up in the spirit. This is a key marker in the book of Revelation. To be lifted up in the spirit is to be given a kind of unique prophetic vision. A foretaste of the day of the Lord. It happens only four times in the book. It happens in chapter 1 when John is lifted up to see the transfigured and terrible Christ reigning in splendor. It happens in chapter 4 when he's ushered into the throne room of God. It happens in chapter 17 when he sees the fall of Babylon. And it happens here when he sees the descent of the new Jerusalem. So in chapter 17 he's carried away in the spirit for a vision of Babylon. But there, the Spirit carried him into the wilderness. Here, the Spirit carries him up to this great and high mountain. So I want to make a couple points about the mountain. Two quick ones. First, throughout this passage, John is drawing, and and drawing very heavily, on Ezekiel's extended vision of the coming future glorious temple what scholars call the eschatological temple, the temple of the end, the eternal temple. That is described in Ezekiel chapter 40 through chapter 48. You really need those nine chapters. Now, our Old Testament lesson was from Ezekiel chapter 40 today, verses 1 through 4. I thought it best not to have a nine-chapter-long Old Testament lesson. But, that Ezekiel reading was intended to remind us that that's the place that John is drawing heavenly on. And in his vision, Ezekiel is also carried away to a high mountain. And this, and this is the second point here. This high mountain imagery is used throughout Scripture to evoke this coming glory, or the prominence, or the security of the people of God. Right? Psalm 48 speaks of Zion. Zion's a little hill. It's not a prominent place, but it says it's beautiful in elevation. It's the joy of the whole earth. And the prophets will speak of the latter days when the mountain of the house of the Lord is lifted up. And so mount, the mountain imagery, the high mountain imagery speaks of the grandeur, the surpassing beauty, the preeminence of the church, her prestige exceeding that of all earthly kingdoms. And what John sees then from this mountainous vantage point, and it's the second time he's seen this already in chapter 21, he sees the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Notice this. He's told by the angel, I'm going to show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And what he sees is the holy city of Jerusalem. The bride is the city. The city is the bride. Among other things, that means, quite simply, this is not the descent of an actual metropolitan area. It's the descent of the church. So I want to make a couple quick points on this easily skipped phrase, which I think is quite important, that this city, the church, comes down out of heaven from God. I mentioned this a little bit last week. So, she comes down out of heaven from God. That means that the future glory of the church, her coming glory, is a pure gift. The, The bride enters into this consummated reality by grace. She comes down from heaven. From God. You know, the church, throughout the New Testament, is depicted as a colony or an outpost of heaven. And I think if we hear that phrase, we tend to sentimentalize it a little bit, and I think we tend to get it wrong. What the New Testament means is that this congregation, or any congregation, the whole historical church, in all of her historical concreteness, buildings, people, in each of her congregations, the church is nevertheless a manifestation A foretaste of this coming future, eschatological, end time, glory of God. Now, the church is already seated, if you will, with Christ in the heavenly Zion. The Jerusalem from above, from above, Paul tells us, is our mother. And so, what's going on in this passage is that the church above The triumphant church in heaven and the church militant, the pilgrim church on earth, are finally joined together as one final complete reality. Now, what we see here then is that the church in her glory exists from and comes from the future and not the past. This is the mind-bending thing about this. Right, it's, it's, it's easy to think of, say, the history of Westminster Church in linear fashion. It goes back to 1854, and then this happened, and this happened, and this happened, and that happened. That's all true. It is, however, not an accurate theological account of the history of Westminster Church. It's a fine sociological historical analysis. The theological account is that the church, the congregation, is in in-breaking from the future of this coming eschatological glorious bride. She comes down out of heaven from God. She, she belongs to the future and lives out of the future and not the past. So, the church then, think of this. The church is not merely a historical phenomenon, you know, a sociological group journeying toward a destiny or an end. She's fundamentally an eschatological future phenomenon who happens to leave historical footprints. This is a complete inversion about the way people think about the time of the church. But this is implied, not just in John, but in the whole New Testament conception of what the church is. So this means we are pulled, as I said last week, into the future by the coming glory. The church does not live by historical succession. She comes from above and from the future. She is validated, glorified, and determined by the end. The end determines the beginning of the church. The beginning does not determine the end. This means the church can never be, we can never fully grasp the church in purely historical analysis. The spotless church, in her essence, in her glory, comes down out of heaven from God. If this vision were described the way we would naturally think about it, it would go something like this. God was touching up the church all throughout history, and he got the church to be in pretty good shape, and then Jesus came. Right? But that's not what John says, right? The church comes radically from above and descends as the bride. And John sees her, in verse 11, as having the glory of God. She's the reflection. She's the receptacle of the divine glory. This really is the essence of what the church is. You know, she was previously described as a bride adorned for her husband. Now we know the husband is the lamb. The husband's explicitly named in this text. But here we learn that her clothing is the very glory of God. Very glory of God. She's got this brilliance like a. Like a jasper, the text says, clear as crystal. You might remember, this image was used of God himself in the great throne room scene in chapter 4. And so what John is saying is that divine glory that I saw around the throne in chapter 4, it now fills the new creation, it irradiates my bride. The early church fathers, especially the Greek ones, used to image this as... Sticking an iron into a burning fire. Right? And, and the fire irradiates the iron. And so the iron is illumined by that radiant burning fire. The iron is still iron, but it's divinized, glorified by the divine fire. That's the image that John is trying to get here of the church irradiated. Lit up from within by the light of God's glory. And in verse 12... The city, then, has this great high wall. Again, it's not a literal wall. It's a symbol of the church's safety. That the church will have inviolable, unblemished, unthreatened fellowship with the triune God. And the wall has 12 gates with these 12 angels stationed on them. And the names of the 12 tribes of Israel on the gates. So here we have to go back and remember these numbers. We've looked at a lot of numbers in this series. But all the way back in chapter 4, there's 24 elders around that throne. And those were, we said, angelic beings. They represent the whole church. 12 for the Old Testament tribes, 12 for the New Testament apostles. Both 12 and 24 are used in the book to represent the fullness of the church from different angles. And you have these angels stationed at the gate. We'll learn later that these gates, next week, Lord willing, that these gates are never shut in the city. And that means these angels are welcoming angels. And that means that collectively, together, they replace the angel with the flaming sword who shut the way back to Eden after the fall. Another thing we'll see is that John is not just using imagery from Ezekiel but he's using imagery from Eden. I will come back to this. These angels collectively are the final divine answer to that flaming sword angel who who keeps the people that God made in his image in exile from Eden after the fall. And so, in verse 14, the wall of the city has 12 foundations, probably meaning 12 foundation stones, and on them are the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So this is simple. The description of the city with two sets of twelve, twelve gates, twelve foundations, is simply a picture of the fullness of the church across both the Old and the New Testament. Remember, the city is the bride. This is, this is the key point to understanding the whole passage. So when you start describing gates and foundations and jewels and this and that aspect of the city, you're simply describing aspects of the coming glory of the church. So that's the city. The second point is the measurements. Modern, the modern church has great fascination with these measurements. In verse 15, again, Ezekiel does the same thing here. The angel has a measuring rod, and he's told to measure the city. Now, back, all the way back in chapter 11, there's a very important scene in Revelation where John is told to take a measuring rod and measure the the inner temple in Jerusalem. The the inner temple, we said, was the faithful church. He was told to not measure, to leave unmeasured the outer precincts of the temple, for that would be trampled by the Gentiles, he was told. And what we said back there is that measuring then speaks of, again, the security that you have in Christ, the protection, the establishment, certain establishment of the people of God it's essentially the same metaphor, the same image as sealing is throughout the book of Revelation. And in chapter 11, the inner temple of the church, the church in its protected heavenly existence in Christ, is measured, but the outer church, the church in its outer estate, the unmeasured court, that church will be trampled. So it's important to go back and remember that because here now, After our historical pilgrimage and tribulation, the whole city, including the gates and the walls, is measured. Nothing is now left unmeasured, because the people of God in their fullness are now forever secure, beyond probation, beyond threat. And so in verse 16, we learn the city is a cube, that its length and its height and it's with our equal. Now, if the whole city's a cube, that means the whole city is a holy of holies. Because the holy of holies was a cube. I mean, after all, the city is the dwelling place of God. The place where his glory rests. And he dwelt in the most holy place. So not only is John picking up from Eden and from Ezekiel, but he's saying what the tabernacle was and what the temple was, you shall be in eschatological glory the very place. You are like a collective human holy of holies in which the divine splendor wants to inhabit. This is what Christianity is about. Taking fallen, exiled people from Eden and bringing them into this resplendent communion with this God. This is the Christian faith. That's why when you, the bride of Christ, are described in your eschatological splendor, you're the shape of a cube. Because you're the Holy of Holies. So each dimension, each dimension, the length and the width and the height is 1,200 stadia, which is about 1,500 miles, again this is not an actual metropolitan area that would fit like in half the continental united states i've seen maps like that this is a symbolic number 12 times a thousand again not an actual city but representing the completeness the fullness of the people of god what we've seen throughout revelation 12 represents either the 12 tribes or the 12 the 12 uh, apostles a thousand is always a number of fullness all the symbolic numbers in Revelation about the saints in the city involve twelves and thousands. You'll notice that. Lots of twelves, lots of thousands. Back in chapter 7, there was 144,000. 12 times 12 times 1,000. And that included 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes. Here we have 12 times 1,000. And verse 17 says, guess what? The wall is 144 cubits. 12 times 12 Again, this is simply an elaborate, ancient, mathematical way of saying you'll, the whole people of God will be fully protected. One scholar points out that it's a kind of a crass mistake to take these numbers literally. They lead to the architectural absurdity of a 216 foot high wall guarding a city that's 1,500 miles high. So I don't think we want that. So the final point is the material of the city. Verse 18, the wall was built of jasper, which we already said was the color of God's glory. So what's the wall of the New Jerusalem that separates the inside from the outside of the city? It's the glory of God. The city was pure gold. And this is a strange kind of gold. It's unlike any gold we know. It's clear. Clear as glass, John says. Probably here he's just contrasting the gold and the jewels which decked out the whore of Babylon. He's saying this woman, this woman's city, is of true and enduring and not corrupt splendor. Finally, I want to say a couple words about the, these jewels. There's a long list of jewels there. I'm not going to talk about each one. They adorn the foundation of the city. But I'll make just a couple general remarks about the list. Um, First, a number of these stones are found in Eden. Go back and read the description in Genesis. And so we're reminded, this is again another value of the book of Revelation. We're reminded that the whole biblical story is a movement from garden to city. Right There's a sense in which without the book of Revelation, you cannot understand the book of Genesis properly. There's a sense in which you have to read from the back on. So John sees this city not just as Eden restored, but an escalated Eden. God is not simply going to restore us back to the original goodness of creation. He's going to restore that and then transfigure it and elevate it to another level. And we'll see that more, Lord willing, next week. Second, this vision of the jewels fulfills Isaiah 54, where God promises Israel that he will restore her, and that her foundations and her gates and her walls will be adorned with precious stones. This is part of the prophetic promise, that God, God would create his new glorious Eden. The third thing, at least eight of these stones are found on the high priest's breastplate in ancient Israel. Along with the names of the tribes that were also on that breastplate. And that means now that the whole people of God, that the priest could go into the cubic holy of holies. This is a way of saying now, in Christ our high priest, we all have access to the cubic holy of holies, which is the city. But this is what Peter means when he says that we, the church, are living stones. We're the house that God is building, or the priestly people with full access to this God. So, this is a text. It's much like chapters 4 and 5. I was talking to a pastor colleague this weekend at Presbytery in Ithaca, and he was preaching, I was trying to convince him that he can preach through the book of Revelation. He didn't want to touch it. So I gave him some reading recommendations. I said, I think I can convince you that you can preach it. But he was telling me they he was preaching through Romans. And he said, I just, I just preached through Romans chapter 8. And uh, he said, you know, it's one of those texts where you read it and you just feel like closing the Bible and sitting down. Uh, there's a sense, there are texts like that, that preachers realize, well, if I comment on this, I'm going to muck it up. <laughs> like the text is just so grand and so glorious. Revelation chapter 4 and 5 are that way, I told him. You feel like you should read the text and say, now you go and read the text as well, beloved, and that will be the sermon for today. <laughs> Some of you would love that, I know. <laughs> but there are texts which are just better read and then reverently reread. Yeah, exposition is needed here, maybe to clear away some confusion. Hopefully, but it's very easy in a text like this to get lost because there's a kind of kaleidoscope of images and numbers and signs, right? And sure, I'm sure you know some, some. are saying, "Well, I'm not sure. I don't know. I don't know if that interpretation I'm hearing is right." You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of dominoes stacked up here. You know. What's important then, I think, that you not miss the sheer breathtaking grandeur of the coming bride. Like when we speak, as we've often done a lot, of revelation orienting us to the end. Of seeking to instill longing in us. A crucial part of that longing is aesthetic. You know, having to do with visual the visual arts, if you will, aesthetic in nature. So that the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is the beautifier of creation, the one who consummates and perfects, through John is seeking with all the resources that human language affords to create desire. If you ask yourself, what is a text like this trying to do to me? It seems unreal, I mean, really, some of these images seem unreal. We don't have any experience of this. The text is trying to create desire, holy desire for the city. In fact, I'd submit that our basic human longing for beauty is just, it's just a sign, an intimation of this coming beauty. And it's easy to be deceived by the ragtag, you know, Mundane reality of the church on the ground, you are the sacrament of this coming city. You are this city in advance. And so you've been given here kind of this extraordinary privilege in the canon of Scripture. God has given us to see, and I mean to see, to visualize what the prophet imprisoned on Patmos was given to see. There's a day when faith is going to dissolve and become sight. And texts like this are a reminder of that. And so, you have to let a text like this sort of sink into your imagination. There's no other way around this, as far as I know, than simply meditating on Holy Scripture and letting these texts shape a person. How does a person become a person who, as I mentioned last week, sees this age as wispy, And light and airy and vaporizing, and sees this age to come imagery as solid and enduring and lasting. How does a person move from one to the other? Well, these texts. Right? These texts. This goes all the way back to the beginning of the series. One of the grand services of the whole book of Revelation is, is it's trying to refurnish your imaginative furniture, right? It's trying to reshape your cosmic vision of things. So, the text is to clarify and purify our longings and our desires. It's always a helpful question to ask ourselves, what do we want? What are we longing for? You know, and usually it's a cluster of near-in, immediate things. John is saying, be ravished by the beauty of this bride. Because to be ravished by that beauty is to be ravished by the glory that irradiates this bride. And in the context of the whole book, it would, it would be put something like this. Unless we're ravished by this beauty, we're going to be held in thrall by the seductions of Babylon. In one sense, again, we could put the whole Christian life as a contest between two beauties, between two sets of affections or desires or loves. John Donne English poet, puts it this way in one of his holy sonnets. After speaking of his desire to have the love of God kindled in him, he says, but I am betrothed unto your enemy. Divorce me, untie, or break that knot again. Take me to you, imprison me, for I, except you enthrall me, never shall be free, nor ever chaste, except you ravish me. Amen.